Podcastle, episode number 79, for November 24th, 2009. Marsh Gods, by Anne Leckie. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm M.K. Hobson, and today's story is Marsh Gods, by Anne Leckie. This is an absolutely fantastic story about a resourceful 10-year-old girl gods who cannot lie, and the political intrigues of a small village. Marsh Gods is set in the same world as her story, The Nalandar, which aired on Podcastle in May. I don't know if Anne is working on a novel in this world, but I'm hoping she is. The settings, characters, and mythology are also rich and interesting. It would be a shame if she doesn't explore them more thoroughly. No matter what she decides to write, though, she's got a lot of varied life experience to draw on. She's worked as a waitress, a receptionist, a rod man on a land surveying crew, and a recording engineer. Anne's newest story, The Unknown God, appears in the February issue of Realms of Fantasy, which hits stands in December in the vaguely oblique yet time-honored tradition of magazines putting issues on sale two or three months before the date on their cover. One final piece of news, according to her blog, the illustration for that story will be used as the cover art for that issue. The story is read by Phoebe Harris, who was a participant in this year's Clarion West Write-a-thon, which happens every summer during the venerable Clarion West Writing Workshop in Seattle. Alumni, instructors, and friends of Clarion West take pledges and collect donations for achieving their personal writing goals during the six weeks of the Write-a-thon. It's interesting to note that tuition generates only half the money Clarion West needs to run the workshop each year. Even though the Write-a-thon is over for this year, you can still support this well-esteemed organization by becoming a member or making a donation. Clarion West is a non-profit organization, and donations are tax-deductible. You can find out more at their website, www.clarionwest.org donate. Enjoy the story! Marsh Gods by Anne Leckie Thoud had escaped the house before dawn, climbing up the ladder and onto the roof, across the neighbors' roofs, and down to the edge of the water, where she had caught three decent-sized frogs. She had tried but failed to catch a fourth, the bullfrog she'd heard honking hoarsely away somewhere on the bank. Her sister-in-law, Atene, would be dismayed at her muddy tunic, but there was no help for it. Now, her prey struggling in her bag, she went to ask the gods a question. It was late enough in summer that she could go on foot, over the causeway. The shore of the gods' island was muddy and cypress-shaded, but as she climbed, the trees cleared. At the edge of the trees, she stopped and dropped her bag on the ground. "'I have questions,' she called. "'Frogs for answers!' Insects trilled. The frustratingly elusive bullfrog honked. Thoud sat on her heels. It didn't pay to be impatient with gods, and watched the sky lighten. Eventually, a brown crane came wading along the margin of the island and walked with careful, backwards-kneed steps to where Vowd sat. It k k k and then said... Good morning, little girl. I'm not a little girl. I'm ten. The crane took two steps backward, 
flapped its wings. You have frogs? Vowd picked up the bag. Three! They're small and weak. One question. They're perfectly good frogs. Three frogs, three questions. Well, before you start, I'm going to warn you. Not every god would, by the way. Not to ask me any questions that are impossible to answer or that are ambiguously phrased. You'll just be wasting your frogs if you do. Vowed sacrificed the frogs and said the appropriate prayer. Then she asked her first question. Is a teen going to remarry? She's free to do as she likes. Your brother Iris has been gone more than a year, and he was never a particularly good husband. No one would blame her. He was a drunk, said Vowd. He never did what he should. A fair description, said the crane. Unfortunately, your question is the sort I warned you against. I don't know the answer. Ask a teen herself. I thought gods knew the future. Gods with enough power to make unlikely things happen are free to make pronouncements about the future the crane said, just the slightest bit pedantic. If I happened to be wrong, I would have said something untrue, and that could be disastrous for me. Think hard about your next two questions. There's no hurry. You know I won't lie. I can't without injuring myself. Vowed frowned. What god do I need to talk to to get a teen to marry the right person? Is that really your second question? Don't answer, it trumpeted before she could speak. Take my advice and say no. Everything I think of is wrong, she cried, frustrated. Why don't you explain what your problem is? The crane flapped its wings. I can't promise to help you directly, but we'll have a better idea of what questions would be appropriate Vowed sighed. My father died last year. I am aware of it, said the crane. My other brother, Tass, died last month. The crane tilted its head. True. Now it's just me and a teen and the baby, because Iris went off six months before the baby was born and never came back. And there's too much work for the two of us, and we're going to have to ask the neighbors for help. And Angat, he's a neighbor of ours. I know Angat. Angat told a teen that he'll come live with us and do the work, if he can marry me. The crane turned first one eye on her, and then the other. Why doesn't he offer to marry a teen? He wants our fishing rights. That stretch of water belongs to our house. A teen's only married in. And she could marry out and take the baby. If she did, Vowed would be all by herself. A teen had said she wouldn't leave. But... Angat is the youngest of ten, the crane remarked. There's precious little to go around in his own house. Granted, 
You're too young right now. But he's not ugly or ill-tempered, so far as I know. What's more, this is the sort of thing I can't get involved in. The terms of the agreement are very clear. We protect you from the marsh fever and keep the babies from getting sick or drowning. We help manage the wildlife of the swamp. In return, you give us regular sacrifices and prayers, which we gods divide equally among ourselves. You are allowed to petition us on an individual basis for things like cures or fertility, the crane dipped its head towards the dead frogs, or information. But hurting one household to help another is absolutely forbidden. We don't get involved in village politics, let alone questions of who should marry who. Besides, you have only to refuse if you don't want him. He killed Tass, Thoud said. He killed Iris. I didn't see it myself, but I'm told Tass tripped and hit his head on the edge of his boat. He was dead before anyone could pull him out of the water. These things happen sometimes. As for Iris, I don't know if he's alive or dead. I was going across the roofs yesterday, and I heard Angot talking. I stopped to listen. For a moment, she considered what a teen would say about that. I heard him say, Well, is he dead? You've had plenty of time to make it happen. I'm tired of waiting. And I heard a scratchy, whispery voice say, Finding Iris was not a simple matter. He had traveled quite a distance. But he is dead. His throat was cut, and he died in a desert far away from here. And something else quieter that I couldn't hear. And Angot laughed and said, Why would you want to be released? I have sacrificed and prayed to you daily since I found you a year ago. And then Angot must have heard something because he started coming up the ladder and I ran away and I don't think he saw me. The crane was absolutely motionless for a few moments. Birds hooted and twittered and somewhere down at the margin of the island something jumped into the water with a plopping splash. If what you say is true, the crane said at last with a ruffle of its feathers, then Angot has a god confined in his house. But there's nothing wrong with any of you worshipping other gods. And nothing to keep other gods from interfering with us. Well now, the crane raised one foot and put it down again delicately. That's a more complicated issue. We do have understandings with the gods of surrounding territories. The swamp would have been drained for farmland long ago otherwise. But I'm not sure what to do about this, frankly. I don't think the gods of the Marsh Association have any grounds for acting. A teen's voice echoed across the water. Vowed! I have to go. Go, said the crane, and don't waste too much grief on Iris. When he was here, he only drank beer and slept all day. Bowed, 
Etienne called again. Thou turned and ran down to the water and across the cypress-shaded causeway, up the mound the village was built on, up the side ladder and across the roofs as fast as she could, to where Etienne stood, ten years older than Vowed, with a naked toddler on her hip. Vowed, where have you... Oh, look at your tunic. I was hunting frogs. Not a lie. Not exactly. She thought furiously for a plausible story, hating to have nothing to show for all the mud, not wanting to say any frog had escaped her, even as a lie. But Etienne seemed too distracted for details. Get inside. She blinked and took a breath as though to speak, but stopped and then, Get inside, she said again. Something was wrong. What is it? Vowed asked. The ladder shook, someone coming up. In a moment, a man appeared, her brother, Iris. And because his beard was trimmed close, she could see the thin red line that ran from one side of his neck to the other, as though his throat had been cut. Iris was a changed man. When he went out fishing... He didn't spend the day drunk or asleep in the boat and then come home with nothing, the way everyone expected. Instead, he made a full day's catch early and then picked up an axe and went to cut wood. He sat down to dinner sober, played with the baby, spoke pleasantly to his wife and sister. In the evening, instead of drinking, he sat in front of the fire and knotted nets or carved fish hooks. It's because he almost died, the neighbors whispered. Everyone had seen the scar. Everyone wondered how long the change could last. There were other things, little strangenesses that never made their way out of the house for the villagers to be aware of them. For instance, one afternoon, Etienne brought him a dish of vetch, and he said, My dear, it amuses me to call this gravel. So the next time I ask you for a bowl of gravel, you'll know what I want. Water was poison, working was sleeping. The list of changed names seemed to grow every day. Vowed wasn't sure why Etienne went along with it, except that the new Iris was kind and hardworking and doted on the baby. And maybe, thought Vowed, that was reason enough. The crane had said not to waste her grief on Iris, and she hadn't cried when she'd heard the whispery-voiced god say he was dead. But one evening, Iris came home in an especially good mood. Good fishing means good trading, he said. He had needles and fiber, dyed and spun for a teen, and a tiny wheeled cart for the baby. And vowed, he said, I hear you're a hunter. He handed her a bronze knife. It was small and its plain haft was dented, but it was a real metal knife and it was hers. That was when she knew for certain that her brother was dead. Iris would never have thought to buy her something she wanted so much. Not without her telling him, and likely not even then. She sat there with the knife in her hand and cried. Thout? 
said a teen, alarmed. The baby, who had been sitting splay-legged, pushing the little cart back and forth, looked up and began to wail. Iris picked him up. Hush, little one, hush. But he looked at Vowed with no pretense in his eyes. He knew why she was crying. Etienne had to know, too, but all she said was, You're tired, that's what it is. Time for bed. The next day, Vowd was knee-deep in water, pulling the down from the cattails, stuffing it into a bag that hung from her shoulder. The baby sat on the shore, clutching his toy cart in one hand, meditatively squishing mud through the fingers of the other. The shadow of a thought crossed his face. Don't eat that, said Vowd. She waded back to shore, wiped the tiny hand on the hem of her tunic, and gave him a piece of hard bread instead. Da! said the baby. Vowd looked up and saw Iris. He came near, sat down, and set the baby in his lap. I didn't kill him, he said while the baby gnawed happily on the bread. Vowd thought about that for a moment. Who are you? I'd prefer not to answer that right now. Because you don't want to say and you can't lie? Oh, I can lie. He smoothed the baby's hair. But. For a god, speaking is using its power, said Vowd. If I say something that's already true, I've spent nothing. If I say something that isn't true, then it depends on how big a change it would take to make what I'd said the truth. The bigger the change, the more power it would drain from me. And some things can never be true. Don't God say untrue things on purpose sometimes to make things happen? You climb down a ladder and don't hurt yourself, but you would if you fell off the roof. He frowned, just slightly. If the lies aren't too big or too numerous, a god can regain its strength through prayers and sacrifices. But I don't have worshippers here, and your brother's death gave me just enough power to move in and repair his body. Thoud sighed. He wasn't a very good brother. But he was your brother, said Iris. They were silent for a while. The baby's eyes began to droop, the soggy fragment of bread still clutched in his hand. Are you good or bad? Vowd asked. He smiled. The answer to that question is complicated, and it wouldn't tell you what you want to know. I was very powerful once. That was millions of years ago. Millions? Do you know a hundred? Yes. A hundred of a hundred hundreds would make one million. Vowd frowned. Are there that many years? Iris raised an eyebrow. She thought he might have laughed if the baby hadn't been asleep. Beneath the dirt we're sitting on, under the water, in layers of stone are remains of creatures whose day came and went much longer ago than a single million years. 
The thought was dizzying, and Vowd blinked it away. So how did you get here? I was on the losing side of a battle a long time ago. Now it's a desert hundreds of miles from the coast, but then it was near the sea. Our enemies made the water sweep inland and drowned us. For millions of years I lay buried where I fell, until the ground eroded away from around my bones, and your brother came, and his killer rashly offered me your brother's blood and body. If I sacrifice to you, Vowd said, thinking of Angot, you'd have power. Save your prayers for your marsh gods, said Iris, looking off into the cattails. She followed his gaze. The crane stood there, managing somehow to give the impression of glaring balefully. I don't think I know you, said the crane. It would have been before your time, said Iris. So I hear, and I'm not pleased to hear it. There's a reason that place is forbidden, and a reason there's a curse on anyone who spills blood there. There's a reason for everything, Iris said. Why are you here? I knew nothing of humans beyond what I read in Iris's mind, but that was enough to know the world had changed a great deal. He thought of this place as quiet and remote, and that suited me. Swear you mean no harm to the village, the crane demanded. The man who cut my throat said he was paid to do it, said Iris. Vowed frowned and thought again of Angot and his whispering god. Iris stood, awkwardly because of the still-sleeping baby. I'll take him home, he said to Vowed. When he had gone, she waded back into the cattails. Be careful, Vowd, said the crane. I don't believe he's as powerless as he implies. I still don't understand why he came here. He didn't have anywhere to go, Vowd said. She thought of her brother, alone in the desert with no one to help him when he needed it. Don't assume that means he's not dangerous. I can't interfere for the same reason I can't interfere with Angot. But you've always been a resourceful child. Angot accused Iris of being an imposter when nearly everyone was home eating dinner. Children who had been playing on the roofs, jumping over gaps and skipping around the plumes of smoke that came up from the village's fires, ran from house to house calling out what they'd heard, that Angot wanted a trial, wanted Iris to prove he wasn't a god. Within a half hour, the whole village was crowded around the headman's roof, where Iris, Angot, and the headman himself stood. In a loud, clear voice, the headman explained the accusation and asked, Are you the same man who left this village? Would you be the same man you were if you'd had your throat cut and been left for dead? Iris asked. There was a mutter of agreement, but he hasn't answered, shouted Angot. Which, Vowd could see, the watching villagers realized was true. But Angot seemed too vehement, and everyone knew he stood to gain if Iris were expelled, 
and Iris was just so different these days. The debate hissed and whispered through the watchers. Vowd knew there was one simple way for Angot to prove that his accusation was true, and she knew it would work. It was just a matter of how long Iris could evade it. The whole village was watching Angot explain that if Iris was really Iris, he could lie. If she could only prove that Angot had killed her brothers. If she went into Angot's house, no one would see her. She had imagined sneaking in, locating the god, and sneaking out. But it hadn't occurred to her that there would be more than a dozen people's belongings scattered around the house. And if Angot had managed to keep his god concealed in such a crowded place, it wouldn't be easy to find. The crane had told her she was resourceful, so it must be true. Whispery god, where are you? she called. Here, said a papery voice. She followed the voice to a corner crowded with rolled-up sleeping mats. Here, the voice said again. Where? A hole in the wall, plastered over. Here. She put her hand on the wall, where she thought the sound was coming from. Here? Yes, said the whispery voice. Break the plaster. Free me. She took the knife Iris had given her out of her belt. I want something in return. What power I have is bound up in Angot's wishes. The voice was quiet but intense. He sacrifices with conditions and qualifications. Has Angot forbidden you to answer any questions? No. He forbade me to speak unless I was directly addressed. And he forbade me to harm him, or he would have been dead long ago. I want to ask you three questions, and if you know the answer, you'll answer. She frowned, thinking over what she just said. You'll answer right then. Agreed. Break the plaster. Set me free. Thou chipped at the plaster with the knife. Did you tell him about Iris? A thought struck her. Do you know who Iris is? I have not spoken to him since the day you overheard us from the roof. His family is too numerous. And yes, I know who Iris is. One left. She stopped digging. Those don't count. I will answer no more questions until you free me. I won't, unless you say they don't count. They don't count, hissed the voice, a whispery sigh. Outside and above, the villagers laughed at something. She dug with fresh ferocity, revealing a gap in the wall and sitting in it, a black stone some eight inches long. A huge, cruel bird's beak. How can you speak? She asked without thinking. Anything with a mouth may speak. Which seemed odd to Vowd, since the beak was motionless even when it spoke. Two questions left. The stone beak cradled awkwardly in her arms. Vowd threaded her way through the villagers, watching Iris defend himself. And for dinner, my wife brought me a bowl of gravel, 
Iris was saying. It was delicious. Nothing but lies for the past ten minutes, said one man. Give it up, Angot. You're lucky if Iris doesn't bring trial against you for this. I'm sure, the headman said, that Iris realizes Angot's suspicion was reasonable. Now the issue has been settled, publicly and fairly. Let him bring trial against me. Angot cried. Let him say straight out that he is the Iris who left here nearly two years ago. Thoud, said Iris, strong and clear, and suddenly everyone was looking at her. The headman frowned, perplexed, and Angot's face went slack. His anger turned to fearful astonishment. Angot is a murderer, she said. Whispery God, who are you, and how did you come to kill my brother Tass? Two questions. I am quit of our agreement. You have no name for me. I was strong beyond your imagination. I and my confederates changed the land into sea, and the sea into land. We defeated our enemies, and left them drowned and powerless. Then I was betrayed. For millions of years I lay buried and starving, until earthquakes and storms freed a small part of me from the mud and stone of the river bluff in which I was trapped. The man Angot came along and chipped the beak from the rest of my skull, brought it to his house, and put me in a hole in the wall and plastered it over. Lies! cried Angot. I will be revenged, said the stone. Angot gave me blood and prayers, but I could use them only for his purposes. He wished me to kill the men of a particular house without arousing suspicion. The father was old. It was nothing to hasten his death. The son named Tass I caused to fall and hit his head with killing force. Angot turned to run, but he was trapped by the solid mass of villagers. As for the man you call Iris, Angot made a strangled noise and collapsed. This is not Iris, the stone continued, but my ancient enemy whom I thought trapped forever. The stone beak was suddenly burning hot, and Vowd cried out in pain and dropped it. It hit the rooftop and shattered into a dozen pieces. From the south came a dull rumble, almost like thunder, but the sky was cloudless. Angot is dead, someone cried, and the villagers began speaking and shouting. Thoud remembered the whispering god saying, He forbade me to harm him. Remembered Iris sitting beside her, the baby in his lap refusing to promise not to hurt any villager. The man who cut my throat said he was paid to do it. Thoud looked toward Iris. He lay unconscious on the rooftop, Etienne kneeling beside him. Iris's ribs moved in slow, shallow breaths. Etienne, the headman said, I'm trying to make sense of this. It lied, said Etienne, when it said my husband had died. It must have killed Angot and tried to kill Iris, 
but its lie destroyed it. Vowed shook her head, but didn't say what she was thinking. The crane was right. Iris had had more power than he had implied. Vowed and Atene sat by Iris, who lay where the men had placed him that afternoon. The sting of Vowed's burned hands had faded. She was crying. Atene's eyes were closed. The baby slept curled on a mat, his thumb in his mouth, eyelashes sticky with tears. There was the sound of wings, and then the crane stepped fussily down the rungs of the ladder. Yatine didn't open her eyes or say anything. Yatine is praying, Vowed said. I know she is, said the crane. Vowed, listen to me. You could sacrifice to Iris, but I strongly advise you not to. At my most powerful, I couldn't do what he did today. A whole section of bluff downstream collapsed into the river and just dissolved away. The ancient gods weren't like us. The world has changed so much. The ways gods survive are different now. I honestly don't know if the gods of this marsh would be strong enough to protect you from him, if you ever needed it. You can make him better, at least enough to get up. Her throat ached, and her voice was unsteady. I don't know what he wants, said the crane. The baby, still asleep, gasped three times in quick succession, and then sighed. I don't know what he'll do. He's dangerous. Fire is dangerous, said Atene, speaking for the first time. She opened her eyes. We still keep it in the house. Fire is what it is, said the crane. You know how to keep it contained. Etienne said nothing, only looked at it. Vowed couldn't read her expression. You're dangerous, Vowed said to the crane, realizing. Very the crane said. That's why there are so many restrictions in the agreement with you. But I do my utmost not to be a danger to you. It took two precise steps closer to Iris, spread its wings, and then folded them again. Iris is what he is, a potentially powerful god not bound by the Marsh Accord. But his presence has made your life significantly better. Whether I help or refuse to help, I may harm you. So I'll consider myself bound by your choice. I know what a teen wants. I can guess what the baby would say. But you, Vowed, are head of the household while Iris is incapacitated. She wanted to say, I'm just a little girl. I only used one question before. You still owe me two. True, said the crane. What happens if I say no? Iris's body will eventually die. The god will still inhabit the corpse, and you'll have to dispose of it. But I can help with that. Thoud sobbed twice and sniffled. If you say yes, 
the crane continued. I can give him the strength to get up. If he finds worshippers somehow, he may grow stronger than we can handle. That's what you're afraid of. Yes. She turned the thought over in her mind. The village's gods who watched over the babies, who had always in her memory been benign, even avuncular presences, were dangerous. Like fire, Etienne had said. She thought of Iris with the baby on his lap, thought of her knife, the stone beak burning her hands, shattering, and Angit dropping dead. She had been afraid since that moment, a nameless fear that the crane just now had outlined for her. And if the crane didn't know how to deal with it, how could she? She felt more tears well and wished she could be done crying. Can you make him strong enough to talk? She asked. That's three, and yes, I can. Iris opened his eyes. Vowed, he said, his voice the smallest sound imaginable. Etienne dipped a cloth in a bowl of water and squeezed it over his mouth, and he swallowed. I owe you. Are you going to hurt us? She tried, but failed to keep her voice steady. Not a good question. Iris said, his voice still a whisper. He closed his eyes again. Thoud shook her head, frustrated. I want to help, but I'm afraid of you. Smart, Iris said. You wouldn't promise not to harm the village, Thoud said. I knew I had an enemy in the village. He paused, and Thoud leaned closer to hear him. I didn't know about Angit's God, though it knew me. Another thing I owe you for. Etienne wet the cloth for him again, and he swallowed. I don't mean harm to the village. I'll abide by village law. For how long? The corners of his mouth twitched faintly. As long as Iris's body lives. Etienne made a sound. Vowed looked up. She was crying quietly, her shoulders shaking. Well done, Vowed, said the crane. Within a week, Iris had recovered. If anyone voiced suspicions, they whispered. No one dared make an accusation. If they were wrong... It would be unjust, and if they were right, it would be unsafe. Certainly any time after Angit's death, if storms or floods washed bones out of the muddy riverbank, skulls with tusks and huge teeth, gigantic femurs, snaking lines of vertebrae, the marsh gods were consulted before anyone would touch them. Eventually, the whispers died down. The headman worried briefly about his position, but Iris showed no sign of ambition. Vowed was another matter. But whoever her brother was, the headman would rather have her as an ally than an enemy when she was grown.
feedback for Podcastle episode number 71, Megan McCarran's I'll Give In, a story about marital strife, a maze, and a minotaur named Phil. This one caused some great discussions on the forums. Katie said, I thought the language and small moments in this created a gorgeous lived realism that contrasted great with the mythic minotaur. I think this type of fantasy, which feels just as grounded in the fiction section of the New Yorker as fantasy magazine, is intriguing because it's just as interested in us as ancient mythic tropes. I find the meshing of those worlds fascinating, and they illuminate the standards of our current time that I think are difficult to see since we're swimming in it. Also, I like the protagonist, maybe because of her flaws. She felt depressed in a charming way to me, and I loved that she told her husband the truth, even when he didn't hear her the second time. My only complaint is I wish she would have chosen the Minotaur. I mean, come on, dude who likes to discuss literature over scotch and is an ancient mythic beast? Gia said, You know the part where they're killing sirens and Phil says that it's okay because they're not human? Isn't Phil technically not human? That would make it okay for Oscar to kill Phil, wouldn't it? I would have liked to see him at least try. He came back to her too easily and a good fight would have really tested Jane's loyalty. Anarchistor complained that the story didn't have enough depth and then added, On a personal note, the main character reminded me of a very bad place to have been. Every man who tried to be a good man, who tries to give his lover, wife, whatever, everything, feels this insecurity. That no matter how good you are, how much she says she loves you, or how much she may actually love you, she'll drop you for the first magical beast that pays attention to her. Or worse, she won't drop you. She'll just apologize and come back, and you'll take her back because you really do love her despite of the pain she causes you, and she knows it too. And you have to come to terms with the fact that all the love you have for her can't make her faithful to you, that some things are just beyond your control, and you have to make some hard decisions about what you want from this relationship and end up feeling guilty and selfish because of it. Anyway, not my favorite story. Anarchistoror, I completely hear where you're coming from. But for me personally, those fears and insecurities you mentioned are part of what made that story work so well for me. Not that your opinion is any less valid than mine. That's all the feedback we have for this week, my friends. But I want you to ask yourselves, isn't it time you gave in and navigated over to Podcastle's own labyrinthine forums at forums.escapeartist.net? Also, don't forget we have disc collections and t-shirts over at poddisc.com. Wearing these t-shirts will make you feel like a badass mythical creature. Or, or... At least a lowly podcastle co-host fresh out of the dungeon. Anyway, order one now for that special Minotaur or Siren in your life at poddisc.com and get it in time for the holidays. A Haitian proverb says, Children aren't dogs, adults aren't gods. Adults aren't gods.